You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael, The Man in the Brown Van, Part 2. I see the job um, in law enforcement is, is our obligation to prove somebody's innocent. And if you can't prove them innocent, then you're on the right track to the person who's guilty. I've never been satisfied he's been proven innocent. And on a balance and scale, my experience tells me there's many more things, not a smoking gun, but there are many things that are too coincidental, don't make sense, and kind of defy logic. I can't say I'm confident he he did it, but I'm less confident that he didn't do it. That's retired Saanich police officer Frank Wright. He is one of two solid sources who have informed my thinking on the brown van guy. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I'd encourage you to listen to that episode first. There's a lot of detail about the brown van man and how I came to learn about him in the first half. When I first got the tip, the brown van guy was alive. I pursued that tip as vigorously as possible for over a year. And then, just before publishing, he dies. I'll admit, I was devastated at first. I worried that this guy could have taken information about Michael's abduction to his grave. But then, I remembered something the current lead on Michael's case, Detective Michelle Robertson, said to me at the outset. Circumstances can change after a key person passes. Maybe the death of the brown van guy will make it possible for someone else to finally talk. Armed with more information about the alleged attempt abduction, I go back to the Victoria Police with an updated FOI and get this response from Deborah Taylor, the Victoria Police Department's manager of FOI and legal services. I do recall your previous request for this file, and we were unable to locate it as the information that was provided was not enough to conduct a proper search. As you know, we have now located a file that resembles the information that you have since provided. This file is part of an active, ongoing investigation, and information contained within the file cannot be disclosed as it may jeopardize the investigation itself. This alleged incident is more than 30 years old. But okay, the FOI is a dead end. And so I pull on every possible thread I can think of. I reach out to relatives of both the brown van man and his spouse to see what, if anything, I can learn about them. It's tricky. I don't want to risk harming this couple's reputation. I avoid the specific nature of my inquiry. I keep my questions truthful but indeterminate. This couple may have information regarding a missing person cold case I'm researching. In my experience, once folks hear that information, most people want to be helpful. Some of those who know the couple get back to me to say they wish they could help, but that the pair keep to themselves. Others supply me with additional names to try. And there is a woman, a relative, who is willing to help. 
for a price. She asks for money up front in order to provide any information about the couple. I tell her there is a reward associated with the missing persons case, but that as a journalist, I don't pay for information. Then I get lucky. I encounter a relative who is something of a family genealogist. I know some of the background of their family. Polish, the Polish Yugoslavian background. He was born in Yugoslavia, and his parents immigrated to Canada. This woman met the Brown Van Guy years ago in Alberta. He was a very happy man. He joked a lot. He had a great sense of humor. His reputation was that he was a, a ladies' man. As far as you know, did he have a, a specific line of work, or what did he what did he do? No, that's the thing. He just sort of, uh, from what I remember, he just sort of traveled and worked. He was elusive, you know, and uh, he just he would ha- he had this van that was a um, oh a Volkswagen. I want to say a, a hippie van, you know, like the seventies had. He had one of those and just would travel. Anything more you can recall about it? You know, it, at the time, and we all did it then, was put stickers on where we stopped. You know, so he would have had stickers from BC to here. You know, the different places he would have stopped. And it was almost like, you know, putting down roots was a hard thing for him sometimes. But Victoria was always his home base. And it, I think it was because his parents were there. They're a Catholic. So that's interesting. Yeah. Ca- Catholic. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Maybe not as devout as maybe his father and mother, but absolutely. Hmm. Do you know, were they like the kind of family who were very involved in the, the cultural side? Would they have been involved in like, you know, Polish or Yugoslavian community activities or? Yes, I, I think they would have been down in Victoria if they had a cultural center or group. Yes, I think they would have been. I learn a lot from this source. But I'm being careful about how much identifiable information I'm including here. My goal is to encourage those few people who may have information about the brown van man or his partner to come forward. I want to learn enough to include or exclude them from Michael's case. To do that, I need to get closer to people who know the couple well. People who were around them back in 1991 when Michael vanished. I make the decision to reach out to a relative. It's someone whom I believe could well be one of the Brown Van Man's alleged child victims. I don't make this decision lightly. But it is possible this person, who is now an adult may have critical knowledge about the brown van man. So I track them down. They no longer live in Canada. Here's the message I get back. Unfortunately, I have no contact with Blank or her partner. I also do not want to be involved in anything to do with them. I appreciate you reaching out, and I hope you find what you're looking for. May I ask how you found me? I believe this individual was a teen at the time Michael was taken. They were living with the couple back then. The possibility they could know something is real. So I follow up. 
I'm sharing the response back because as much as I tried to be trauma-informed in my work, in this case, I caused harm. And I want to be upfront about that. I ask that you respect that I want nothing to do with Blank or her partner. I don't have any more answers than anyone else does. I wish I did. Also, just for the next time, you may find yourself reaching out to someone in my situation. Consider what labor you're asking of them. Consider what trauma or unwanted feelings and thoughts you may bring up for them. I have spent a lot of time trying to separate myself from them and the trauma I was caused. Best of luck with your story. I can't press them any further. I make extensive efforts to speak with those who rode or worked at the stable where Brown Van Guy was employed for a time. I talk to dozens of people in this context. A handful of them recall the man I'm focused on. The owner of the stable, however, has passed. I speak with members of the family of the owner, and I learned back then that the stable offered writing lessons, that there were often kids hanging around the grounds. I'm told the ranch is sometimes filled with children, people dropping off their kids at the stables, a kind of informal daycare. One woman, now an adult, recalls how, as a child, the brown van man made her feel uncomfortable. How he told inappropriate jokes, talking dirty to the children, and creeping them out. Some of the people I speak with remember the allegations that the stable owner suspected him of breeding horses at night for his own enjoyment. One source tells me a number of the mares got pregnant, several foals die, and the stable loses a lot of money, nearly going under as a result. I also speak with a man who knew the stable owner well. As I speak with him, I can almost hear the wheels turning as he rolls back time to a conversation he once had with the owner. She told him a story. A story about a guy who used to work for her who she thought might have something to do with Michael Dunahy's disappearance. She described him as a real queer duck. She went to the police back then because it was bothering her. She had two old wells on the property and was worried that Michael's remains could have been hidden there. She told him the police sent a psychic out to check out the property. Now that sounds odd to me, so I ask him if he's certain that's what she said. And he confirms, yes, he was told a psychic was sent to the property. The psychic apparently looked around and said there was nothing there. Before I end the call, he tells me the owner was sharp and had pretty good hunches. He took her seriously on this matter. Now, that's the second time someone has described the brown van man as a queer duck. In both instances, I take it as a kind of old-fashioned reference to the guy being odd, peculiar, and not a suggestion the man is homosexual. 
As I continued to dig online for traces of this pair, anything that could connect them with the Dennehy case, I find a document. It's a list of voters put together during a house-to-house visit by a pair of enumerators. Back in 1974, the man is living with his brother and wife at an address just about five minutes away from where Michael is taken. When the FBI did their profile of the Dennehy abductor, it was their belief, and the belief of Victoria police investigators at the time, that whomever took Michael would have known the neighborhood well. So I check off that box for the brown van man, too. I decide it's time to speak with the man's brother. I track him down and call him. I explain that I'm a journalist working on a missing person case, and I believe it's possible his brother has information. Missing person? What missing person are we talking about? I'm a bit reluctant to say much because I don't know for certain what, if anything, your brother might know. Well, I'd like to learn a little bit about your missing person, too, but you're reluctant to say it. What's the secret? I'll tell you this, the missing person whose case I'm looking into is Michael Dunahy. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's the case. Are you familiar with Michael's case? Yes, I'm familiar with that, and now it makes a little more sense. Right. The reason why his name might have come up, if it did come up, because as I recall it, this is many moons ago, there was a van involved, or they say there was a van, and my brother had the van. And for, for quite a while, the police was following him until he finally got fed up and said, what is here? And that's, that pretty well ended the, the story. Uh, there's no more uh, news or anybody else questioning anymore. Are you guys close? Do you still talk? No, we're not. In fact, the last time I talked to him, he's got a heavy dimension, so I don't even uh, know where he is right now. No, but that, that part uh, uh, about Danahue, that's uh, uh, as far as off as it can possibly be. I know, I know him, and I know what went on at the time. And as I say, only uh, a reason that I remember, because he told me he was getting pissed off that the cops were following him. So he said, what gifts? Why are you following me? And that's what they're supposedly, they say, well, when the time he was missing, there was somebody reported the van that looks like yours. Right. And that's basically where it ended. There was nothing um, from what you know of your brother to suggest he, he might be capable of anything like that? or No, no, that's it's as far as uh, from the, not even close. Right. Because I knew him uh, enough, if anything else. If there was uh, the women, perhaps, yeah, but uh, kids, no. Well, I'm sorry I can't help you, but uh, if anywhere, if anybody else is involved, it certainly wouldn't be him. Okay.
right. Yeah, well, th thank you very much for, for speaking. I appreciate it. No, no problem. You take care. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm told by one of my sources that they have access to written material related to the brown van man. Reports, files, pictures. I'm left alone in a room with a box of handwritten notes and photocopied reports. Most of what I find in the notes reflects the various aspects of the couple's background as it has been relayed to me by my sources and through my own discoveries. But there is more detail here, and even more threads to pull. There are some names and phone numbers. It's been 30 years, though, and while people want to be helpful, I don't have much luck when I begin calling these folks. Yes? Oh, is Leonard there? My father-in-law passed away about four years ago now. Oh, he did, eh? Okay. Yeah. Hello? Hello. Have I reached the prep checks? No. I haven't. Okay. Wrong number. Okay. Thanks so much. How do you know him? Oh, we were all friends. Mother and father and everybody. But mother, father dies. And then, you know, other friendship disappears slowly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What? What's he like? I've never spoken with him. <laughs> like you and me. <laughs> yeah? Uh, I don't know where he is. Someone signed the until he moved out. Right, okay. Yes, I know him. I heard about him. But I didn't see him over two or maybe three years already. I did not see him long time. He never comes to the church anymore. I think he was a little bit ill. Uh, he was not feeling good for a while, I heard. Amidst the lists of numbers, notes, and reports, I see a note about a report made to police late in December 1990. A Christmas party is being held at a cultural center in Victoria. The party is for an agency representing models and actors, including a child actor who's at the center of the report. There is a description of an incident alleging that a man, presumed to be a caretaker, is seen leading a little boy away from the party and out of the building. He is prevented from leaving and, when questioned, claims to be giving the boy a tour. Someone thought it was important enough to call it in. I have the name of the agency and the child actor, so I follow up. I speak with the owner of the agency. I never saw anything, but, you know, as far as there being... She recalls the Christmas parties well. There was food, soft drinks, and music. The parties were typically two to three hours long in the evening, from around 7 to 10 p.m. The center also had dance classes and rehearsals, so there were people coming and going in addition to the folks attending the party. She doesn't remember seeing anything suspicious, nor does she recall the incident. But she tells me just the idea that something like this could have happened makes her blood run cold. I mean, it's just, it's so scary. 
Even though this happened more than 30 years ago, she recalls the party and the child, but nothing about the incident. I also speak with the mother of the child. The child is now a grown man. The mother never knew about this alleged incident. The cultural center has no record of the man working there. But for whatever reason, this incident, too, is in a file connected to the brown van man. At this point in my research, the brown van man was still alive. And I'm anxious to talk to him, to talk to this queer duck and his partner. But they're not returning my messages. They haven't responded to any of my attempts to reach them online or through family. So I call their home, expecting to leave a message. And she picks up. Hello? Hello, is this Yes, it is. Hi, uh, my name is Laura Palmer. Oh, hi. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk to me. No, I'm not. And I really don't appreciate that you've been going to all my family asking about me. I'm not well at all. I'm disabled and my aunt and is, is got dementia, so... Right. Really not interested. Well, I, I'm sorry to hear that you're, you're not well. If I came to meet you face-to-face, would that make you more comfortable? No. No. No, I don't even understand how the hell you got all my information. Right. Who gave, you the, who gave you that phone number of mine? This phone number is listed. Fine and dandy. I'm not interested right now. Thank you. And uh, have a good day. There is something in her curt response, the fact that she isn't at all curious as to why I'm calling, that convinces me I still need to try to speak with them in person. They don't know I'm coming. I did call and have a conversation with the woman last week. Uh, I have been trying for some time Prepare to talk to, to her. Prepare to continue straight after one kilometer. I've been trying for a while to talk to her, but she hasn't responded to any of my um, messages online. And I tried through relatives of hers, but got the information back that she didn't want to talk to me. So it wasn't a matter of her just not getting the messages. She does not want to talk to me. And and she did say that on the phone, that she didn't want to talk to me. After 300 meters, continue straight. I feel and know this from years of getting people to talk to me, that it's really easy to ignore an email. It's a little less easy to not talk to somebody when they phone you. And it's hard not to talk to somebody when they show up face-to-face. Continue straight. This is a a long trip. It's going to take me hours there, hours back, hopefully a little bit of time with them. And maybe it's going to be all for nothing, but there's enough there for me to feel like I'll regret it if I don't. Okay, so I'm bringing hot cross buns with me. Just because I went to the bakery yesterday thinking, I'm going to visit elderly people, I would normally bring something. Prepare to keep left after three kilometers. We're getting close. Prepare to turn left in one kilometer. The couple live in a pretty mobile home park here on the island. 
it's filled with seniors. I chat with many of them as I look for the right place. They are friendly and kind. I finally find the right unit. It's neat with some lovely gardens out front. I knock on the door, clutching the hot cross buns and a card. Hello, hi. I think I'm probably in the wrong place, but maybe not. A pleasant middle-aged woman answers. She's holding a bunch of red carnations in her hand. Oh, she is. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Inside the trailer is packed to the roof with stuff. Boxes, knickknacks, a collection of antique dolls. Yes, yeah. I I don't need to take up much of your time. I'm just hoping to have a quick word. Well, I don't know anything that's going on. Is here? Yes. She said to Bola. I'm sorry, I don't know anything. And is available to talk to me here? No, we see. I don't know the situation. Yeah, she, I'm a journalist. Oh, no. Well, she, she, she said, yeah. yeah? Just close the door on her. I don't want her here. Yeah. I don't think so. No, she said, no. It's Okay. Thank you. The cheery, bright sounding woman turns angry when she learns I am her visitor. And as you heard, she yells at me to get out. I feel badly for the person who answered the door with the carnations. She could be a friend, as she said, or perhaps a caregiver. When she says I have to leave, she looks really uncomfortable. But she refuses the buns and letter on the couple's behalf, running after me with them. I make a few more attempts at the door, hoping she will agree to even a few minutes with me. No answer. So I call her from the street and try to talk to her on the phone. Five minutes, and then I'll go away. I I don't understand why you're so hostile to me. I don't even know you. She threatens to call the police. I ask around as to who might know the pair and get directed to former managers of the complex. They remember interviewing them when they moved in, maybe five years ago. They thought the brown van man, now very elderly, might be dead. They said there have been many ambulance visits to the unit. Now, I'm not sure what I expected. I'd hoped that perhaps face-to-face, I could simply ask them some questions. Maybe I could learn enough to exclude these two. Or maybe, with her husband in poor health, the woman might feel it was time to share what, if anything, she knows. The rage, I heard in her voice, could simply be annoyance. It could also be fear that their comfortable existence could yet be undone. It's around this time I get a call from the Victoria Police. They want to give me a heads up that the couple have complained to the local police about me. Now, this is interesting. Not once have I mentioned to the couple I was there concerning Michael Dennehy. And yet, it is they who raise Michael's name to the local police. 
the officer handling the complaint, calls the Victoria Police. The Victoria Police are kind enough to explain who I am in relation to the case. When I am eventually contacted about the complaint, I'm told the pair view my questions as harassment. Here's what I told the police and what I want to say here as well. I have been nothing but professional and polite in all of my interactions with this couple. I left their home when I was asked to do so. When the woman told me her partner had dementia, I empathized, even sending along some videos about home care. On this point, I don't know for certain whether the brown van man was actually coping with dementia at the time. When I told retired police officer Frank Wright about this, he wondered if it could be untrue. He thought it was the kind of thing the man might do to get out of being held responsible for anything. He describes him as a chameleon. Remember, the brown van man once pretended he could not speak English to avoid being questioned directly. But in any case, I don't view my inquiries as harassment. I believe, given the nature of the crime I'm reporting on, that my persistence is warranted. But without their cooperation, without more information from the Victoria Police, I find myself at an impasse. Missing Michael has chronicled the extensive efforts the police have made over three decades. All of that has been clearly laid out in the earlier episodes of Missing Michael. Nothing I've learned should detract from the years of hard work and sincere passion the police have brought to this case down the years. And if you've listened carefully, you will have also heard concerns about the size of the case file becoming unmanageable, about the possibility that within the growing piles of paper, tips, reports, thousands of items, there was a chance that something could get overlooked. Michael Dunahy's disappearance has been described as unexplainable, almost like an alien abduction. Michael is there one minute and gone the next. But if the brown van couple is involved, the trail was there from the beginning. The failed abduction in the same area. Witnesses spotting their brown van. This creepy guy with the disturbing pattern of deviance. I say if because I don't know. I was not able to conduct an interview with the man before he passed. And as you have heard, his spouse still declines to speak with me. I'm not privy to the outcome of any investigation into this pair. When I first interviewed Victoria Police Detective Michelle Robertson, she talked about how everyone down the years has had their pet theory about Michael's abduction. I've tried to warn myself against tunnel vision. I've watched for confirmation bias as I gather my research. But at this point, I believe the man in the brown van could be the most promising lead yet. Did anybody in my 30-year career in Afghanistan, I've investigated homicides, fatal accidents, 
sexual assaults did any one individual ever give me that goosebumps and and hair in the back of the neck no not not to that not to that extent this is the only file that when i start to think about it i get a little jammed up because i just think there's more to be done it's a disappointment for me that it hasn't been done and I didn't flip the bird to the establishment and say, fire me, I'm doing it. I could be wrong. And, and you know, if I am, I'm, I'm happy. I think this is more about closure. That's what it's about now. We all want justice, right? And we all want, we all want culpability, but whether you get a conviction or not, I don't know. It sounds like even the window for closure is closing. Retired Saanich police officer, Frank Wright, talked about how there is no smoking gun here, and he is correct. It's my opinion, the information and description of circumstances suggest a connection. If you've listened to this episode and have information about the man in the brown van, please get in touch at laura at laurapalmer.ca. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael Island Crime Season 3. Once again, I'll leave you with this plea from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs>